It's really hard to overstate the amount of heart and soul that we put into every single product and every piece of content that we publish into the customer experience. We're obsessing over every word. We're obsessing over every element of every product. After it's in market, we're obsessing over it again. If a customer is unhappy about something, we go out of our way to try to make it right. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, your number one podcast for e-commerce insights from some of the biggest names in the industry and the fastest growing startups. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at Mission.org. Today, I talked to Rod Morris, the co-founder and president of the early childhood product company, Love Every. He told me all about the development of the company's amazing products and more importantly, how he and his team went about making them stand out among the rest. Let's jump into it. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities? Or little discussed financial trends? Or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Rod, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Glad to have you. So... Okay, you guys sent me some amazing boxes. Uh, to be honest, I had not heard of you before this, and I feel like I should have. Having three kids under the age of four, I'm always kind of out searching for actually good, you know, play kits and things that are not just plastic toys that are going to lay around and get jumbled. And so you sent me these beautiful four boxes that are age based, and honestly, it's the best thing I've received in the past three years. Oh, thank you. So with that. I want to hear how did you come up with the idea of Love Every and what is it? Yeah, sure. Well, that's first off, I'm really glad you like everything. And um, yeah, just congratulations for holding it down <laughs> with multiple children while you're running this this whole thing. So thank you. Yeah, you know, Love Every, we think of ourselves as an early learning program for children and their parents, right? And so our flagship offering is a subscription that we call the Play Kits. And if you have a baby, you get a play kit every two months. Uh, If you've got a one-year-old or older, you get one every three months. It's a little bit bigger, a few more things. Um, But it includes toys and books and other learning tools for your child. And then it's got a a guidebook for the parent that's all tied into how your child is developing at that given moment and what they're hungry to learn. Uh, We also have a mobile app for parents that's got even more information uh, if they want to dig in even deeper or connect with experts. And so that's that's the core of the program. We also have some individual products that we sell, um, mainly as an exercise to make people more aware of the brand. Um, and the idea uh, was one that uh, my co-founder Jessica had uh, when she was busy, you know, kind of in the midst of running her, her last startup, which was a baby food company called Happy Baby. Oh, yeah. Yep heard of that. Mm-hmm. She co-founded that business uh, and you know, was in the process of getting it ready for sale and uh, you know, had had her first child 
and was just having trouble sort of connecting with her child using just the toys that had been gifted to her mm-hmm. and didn't really understand fully what was going on with his developing brain. She knew what to feed him, but not what he needed for learning. And a friend gave her a, you know, a PhD thesis, believe it or not, that had a survey of all the published child development research with suggestions around things you could do that would be age appropriate for your child uh, to help their development. And when she dug into that, she realized it was, you know, A, like really it worked. It, it was something that like made everything click for her. And then B, it was very different from what was available in stores. Uh, and so she and her husband started making products and, you know, sourcing stuff from Montessori schools and things like that. Um, now I've known my co-founder for, more than 20 years. I've known her um, you know, basically a week less than I've known my wife because uh, she and my wife were best friends and from high school and they were roommates after college mm-hmm. working in the same city. And, um, and so Jess and I have known each other for a long time. I at the time was busy taking a company public. Uh, I was running half of a business called Opower that uh, was a software business that helped consumers save energy. Mm-hmm. And so we had been, you know, kind of using software and messaging to compel people to save enough energy to take a couple cities off the grid. And I was getting that business ready for IPO. And I had just gone through the early phases of parenthood with my twins, uh, one of whom is dyslexic. So I was super tuned into, you know, kind of the ways in which children learn, you know, kind of the impact I can have as an involved parent. Um, so when Jessica told me that, you know, hey, this stuff that I've been, you know, kind of learning, I'm thinking about turning this into a business and maybe a subscription business. I, I was like, well, I love subscription businesses. I love being part of something that's mission driven. Why don't we do this together? And that was, you know, kind of, I guess, about seven years ago when we had that conversation. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward a few years and we had you know kind of launched our first product and then we'd launched subscription and. You know, today the business employs over 200 people wow. uh, and, you know, we've got, you know, a run rate uh, north of 150 million and we're selling subscription uh, around the world. So it's it's come a long way in a short time. Yeah, I'd say so. Wow. OK, so, OK, when you're talking to your wife about, you know, hopping in with her best friend on business, what was kind of the thought around that? Was your wife kind of like, whoa, don't take my best friend and pull her into something that I'm not going to be able to like have time with her? Like, what were some conversations I haven't heard that happening too often. Yeah, you know, it it's funny because I think like I I think when I went into it, I thought this is gonna be great. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm gonna like set it up so that my wife and her best friend can be in the same city, you know, and I'll have more control over my life because I'll be a founder mm-hmm. uh, instead of working for somebody else. Um, but I think my wife was way smarter than I was about thinking about all the complications <laughs> and you know, kind of talking through those. So what I would mm-hmm. say is, you know, all the benefits that we expected, you know, those definitely have been true, but, um, you know, it's also not been without its challenges, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, work can kind of take over and it becomes more complicated if I'm working with my wife's best friend, Yep, I would say. So I, I wouldn't say it's perfect. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know, like trust is really important to a partnership. And because Jessica and I have known each other for such a long time, and because we have these other dependencies, mm-hmm. I think there's a high, high degree of trust and alignment. Yeah. So what I loved about Love Every too was it also made me realize I was kind of lumping all the toys together. I mean, I've got a three and a half year old and I've got twins that are 19 months and they were all just playing with the same toys. And what was so interesting was I got your puzzle out, 
which is actually is quite hard when I was thinking about like trying to figure out like, oh, there's many ways that you're supposed to be matching this puzzle piece together. And seeing my three and a half year old do that, it was kind of this aha moment of like, wow, I've been keeping him at the same level as my twins. They all just play together, which can be nice, mm -hmm. but I wasn't challenging him enough, which was just great now that I have this new set of toys. I mean, tell me about how you come up with, you know, the stage-based learning, or I'm guessing your co-founder does a lot of that too, but yeah. how do you know when to release new products and grouping them in ages? It just seems so interesting. Thanks. Yeah. And it, it really is, you know, we find that it's, what's interesting is, is, and maybe you saw this with, with your oldest is when you give them something that is tied into what they're wired to be wanting to learn right at that moment, mm -hmm. even, you know, it just becomes like what they're really, really into and they get obsessed with it. If it's like, tuning into what they really want to do at that time. Yep. So I guess there's like three phases to how we, we think about this. So the, the first is we always start with the research. And so there's, there's a whole range of research around child development from scientists, neuroscientists, practitioners in the field around like at any given age, what is a child trying to learn? So, you know, for a three-year-old, uh, it's really all about sort of independence and, and figuring out, you know, kind of like, who they are and 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 what they want uh, to get for themselves, uh, and mm -hmm. and you know it it changes with every given year, changes you know kind of across a given year as well. And so we take all of that research and we build it into themes. Uh, and then the second thing that we asked ourselves is, well, what can Love Every do? What are we uniquely positioned to do to serve this need that we're seeing in the research themes? And so we'll take that view and we'll, we'll invent net new products. Uh, we have a ton of really talented designers and engineers on staff who come up with different products. And we'll also look at products that are out there, either you know, being used uh, by specialists like folks who work with learning differences or occupational therapists uh, or other, other practitioners uh, who maybe aren't mainstream to everybody, but they're doing something that's actually pretty cool and interesting you know, to any kid if they get their hands on it. Mm -hmm. And then we, we kind of take a survey of anything else that's working out there, maybe things that are you know, DIY that we could make safe, baby safe and, and make ourselves. And so we, we build a thesis around, okay, we have the themes and we think through, okay, these are the products that we think would be relevant that we could make. And it's always more products than we actually are planning on launching with. Mm -hmm. And then we go through a very iterative process of home studies of prototypes. So we have a full prototyping capability in our offices in Boise, Idaho, um, lots of different kinds of machines and, and 3D printers and things like mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, we'll construct different prototypes. We'll do home studies with families from all different walks of life. And we're going to be studying in any, any situation for an extended period of time. So the child has enough opportunity to really kind of notice the toy and, and spend time with it. And also so that the parents have enough information where they can say, yeah, this was great or you know, this didn't quite work. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is even after we then winnow down to whatever we're going to launch, um, that doesn't mean that we're done iterating. So after we launch our products, we're also rigorously looking at NPS feedback on every single product and every single kit, and then also talking to customers on a daily basis to understand like, okay, so did we get this right? Do you love every single thing in the box or not? And um, there's always you know, an opportunity to do it better. And so we'll do refreshes from time to time hmm. to tune up every box and try to get it as perfect as we can. Wow. Okay. So when thinking about launching in the very beginning, I mean, every new company is trying to figure out ways to get found. So like, how did you, you know, go about acquiring new customers, you know, having them 
pay attention to a new subscription box, which, you know, a few years ago, there were so many, it was very, very competitive. Even now, I feel like it still kind of is. Yeah. While also, you know, keeping your standards and quality very high, which at least today when I got this, I'm like, wow, all like wood things and like very nice materials. I mean, I, like I said, I was very blown away by the quality level as well. How did you kind of balance all of those when launching the company and growing it? That's a great question. So I think when we started, before we had made, you know, kind of any final product design decisions, we invested a lot of time, energy, and for us, a lot of our funds into defining the brand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we we sought out the best sort of partners uh, that we could find uh, to help us with branding and tone of voice to really establish like, okay, what is this experience going to be for parents? And so we started with that. And then we invested a great deal into the products themselves. So our, our working philosophy was, if we get the brand right, we're going to get the products right. And if we get the products right, Marketing is not going to take care of itself, but you don't have nearly as good a company if you like lean into marketing first and you don't nail it mm-hmm. on brand and product. So we spent, including myself, just a tremendous amount of time on those early products and, and on the brand. When it came to marketing and awareness, what that meant was uh, we had limited funds and we didn't have you know, nearly as built out a marketing capability as we did you know, a product capability. And so, you know, a couple things that we did. Um, so one was, as you would expect, uh, it's kind of a standard story, a lot of emphasis on PR and connecting with influencers. So, you know, but, but on a budget, that's, that's kind of interesting, right? I mean, we weren't paying any influencers. We still don't pay influencers today. But we hired, uh, you know, we hired a, a publicist who was well-connected to celebrity stylists and, you know, kind of other influential people who helped us gift free product. Uh, to folks ahead of the launch of uh, our, our first product and then ahead of the launch of our subscription as well. Our first product was a, a baby play gem. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, as an example, I remember, you know, Jessica and I, uh, we wanted to do as much press as we could. And there was like a, there was like a trade show in like Las Vegas for mm-hmm. baby products. And we we're like, okay, well, we're not going to buy a booth, but this is where all the press are going to be. So like, let's just buy tickets as if we're like just audience, you know, just sort of like customers going to the trade show and then mm-hmm. to try to book press interviews. And so like I went with like our first product, the Play Gym, kind of tucked under my arm and we just sort of like said, hey, we'll meet you at this booth. We'll meet you at that. Booth. <laughs> and we just sort of like hijacked other people's booths. That's great. And, you know, chased, chased reporters down. Um, you know, I think our best our best interview um was uh, when my co-founder Jess like cornered a, a writer for Pop Sugar in the nursing room, um, and she was you know captive audience for like forty minutes and yep. opened the product up, and so like you know we did stuff like that, um, mm-hmm. and then we came to like paid media. We found really really quickly like you know if you're a new brand, it's all about social proof. Um, it's all about like people seeing that other people are doing something and, and it's also all about explaining. And so, you know, very early on, uh, we did our best to take advantage of, you know, kind of other people's sort of testimonials, posts, um, mm-hmm. you know, articles about us. And, um, you know, I was making, making our ads on like apps on my iPhone, basically. <laughs> um, today we've got like a, a very large creative team that does mm-hmm. a much better job on this, a very professional like growth marketing org. Um, and we crank out, you know, hundreds of ad variants, uh, you know, kind of every every month, like there's 
tons of ad variants going on across lots of channels. Um, you know, mm -hmm. Facebook, Instagram, of course, but you know, connected TV, YouTube, et cetera. And it's 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 a much higher quality of creative. But when we started, that's how we thought about it. Wow. Okay. So now that I've heard about this, you know, you have a big growth team and creative team. Like what channels are you all leaning into or trying out right now? Maybe betting big on? Is there anything new that you're looking into outside of the more traditional channels like Facebook and Instagram? You know, I would say that for us, because we're so specific about our brand and we care so much about our brand, um, it was a really big leap to get onto connected TV. I think it's mm -hmm. like less scary for some people, but we just really cared about, you know, getting things right with our brand. Mm -hmm. But connected TV has been great for us. You know, we talked to other founders who were having success on that channel. And I would say, you know, probably it's it's emboldening us to, you know, kind of probably do linear TV after that. Mm -hmm. Now that we have more and more products, uh, there's more likelihood that the people who see the ads are going to be likely customers. So yep. I think we're feeling good about TV channels. Yeah. So, okay. What are some of the differences when you're going to connected TV? Like what were some of the learning lessons there jumping from, you know, maybe Instagram ads to then connected TV? You know, it's funny because, um, you know, one thing that's consistent is like, if you can break format, you know, if you can, if you mm -hmm. can do something that's divergent, that's not what people are seeing over and over again, that's going to be successful. Um, the other thing that's different is, you know, the spots uh, tend to be, you know, kind of like a 30 second spot um, is, is kind of sweet spot for, for connected TV while on paid social, you know, with a 15 second spot, you can often do what you need to do and, and need to get that done like faster. So I would say a little bit longer, um, and, but continue to break the format. Cool. Okay. And you mentioned you had 250 employees now, uh, like just under 250, I would say. Yeah. Okay. So how did you think about growing that team? And like, what are some lessons you would give maybe new founders who are maybe scaling quickly? Like, how did you know when to have a growth team versus creative versus I know you have engineers because you have software? Like, what did that look like scaling up? Yeah, it's a good question. I wish that I had like a super structured, brilliant answer for you. I guess like some concepts I would say are important for us are, are one, you know, kind of the, the trite, everybody says like, you know, slow to hire, fast to fire, like, um, and, you know, kind of like, a players hire A players, B players hire C players kind of thing. So mm -hmm. what does all that mean? I think like, you know, we, we definitely don't always get it right, but we try to hire, you know, kind of the strongest possible people that we can in their respective disciplines and mm -hmm. then give them room to maneuver to, to identify like, hey, if you want to do this right, if you want to do this best in class, this is what your team needs to look like. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really a strategy that's focused around finding the best people in their disciplines and giving them room to run um, in terms of how we prioritize, like what teams we build first. You know, I think, I think Jessica and I both sort of like are very aligned around like, okay, we've nailed this. We got to nail this next and then this next. Right. So, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes it's super logical. Right. So I'll give you an example. You know, we have a pretty large business at this point in the U S uh, and so now that we're, you know, pretty well established in the U S and we have like tons of inbound demand coming from international markets, we're starting to move into international markets. So, um, and so then it was, okay, well, which international market offers us the most opportunity with the, you know, kind of best ease of execution. And we've got a GM we can do it with. And for us, it was Europe and UK. Mm -hmm. So we launched with a couple of products, just individual products first, a little over a year ago. 
in Europe and the UK. And then we launched subscription on our, our own subscription software platform in August um, in Europe and the UK. And then and now that we've you know kind of proven out that, hey, that seems to be working, we just hired a GM for Asia. And so we're like working on our strategy now around like where do we prioritize first in Asia? And again, it's really all about like ease of execution and capital efficiency versus like how big are different markets we could go mm-hmm. after and like putting those things together. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. Are you having to change the play kits based off of where you're going? Because I'm sure people in Asia maybe don't have the same kind of, you know, educational style that maybe we do versus UK. And also we've taken our educational style from other countries too, like what's popular here. So like, how do you think about those play kits when you expand internationally? So I'd say like Asian markets are still like the jury is out on figuring out like what we're going to do for each of those. Mm -hmm. But what we found in Europe and the UK, which I think will in some ways be the case in Asian markets is you know, basically babies are babies everywhere. And like the, the way in which humans develop is fairly universal. So in terms of the products themselves, um, other than like language or, you know, in the US we have a book about a child seeing a pediatrician and children don't go to pediatricians in Europe, right? So things like that, like will change products a little bit. Mm-hmm. The main thing really around product uh, for us has been making sure we're complying with the local regulations around everything from, you know, kind of safety, quality to, you know, kind of how we describe the materials and and things like that. So we always do that, but we're fortunate in that, you know, kind of we're still selling uh, products for babies and and young children, and they're the same everywhere. You know, I think like when it comes to the marketing, even the, the marketing concepts themselves, the ones that perform highest in the U.S. are often the ones that perform highest in Europe and the U.K. Um, we'll mm-hmm. see how that goes in Asia. Marketing channels are different in Asia, much more different in Asia than, you know, from the U.S. than, than European ones are from the U.S. So I think there's going to be a ton for us to learn. On the other hand, the, the level of demand we're seeing from Asian markets is is pretty massive. So, you know, I think it's, we will, we will have lots of trade-off decisions to make around where to localize and where not to. Um, and I think it's just going to be, again, all about what's the, what's going to give the customer the experience that they want and do it in a way that's capital efficient for us going after the market, given the size of the market. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense. When it comes to the app that you guys built, how, I mean, what kind of traction have you seen around that and how do you kind of keep people coming back and wanting to use it? Like what kind of engagement did you set up on that platform? Yeah. So, um, so really like the, the app is built around your child's age. So depending on how old your child is, uh, you're going to be seeing a certain set of content and you're going to be cohorted with other people whose child is the exact same age, you know, within like a month of Mm -hmm. yours. Um, and so you're all going to be accessing the same content you're all going to be asking questions of experts around the same kinds of topics and then seeing Q&A live, you know, with experts. And 
you know, kind of our point of view has been that if we can just do that, if we can just be super relevant and efficient with your time, then we're going to be highly engaging. And so we look at all the typical metrics, you know, time, time in the app, L28 and things like that. Um, and while I, I don't want to disclose like specific metrics, I'll tell you that the engagement has been extremely high and, and higher than we expected. And mm-hmm. that people are really digging into all of, all of the material. Um, I would say kind of similar to our physical products. We spent a long time, uh, in the developmental stages of this app before we launched it, we had stops and starts. We did multiple design sprints, lots of prototyping. So. I would say it's it's a pleasant surprise um, to see the level of engagement be really high, but we're not shocked that there's good engagement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely not surprised. I think back to this app that I had when I was pregnant, it would tell you, you know, here's what's happening to the baby every week. And every week I would go in there and kind of see like, okay, how big are they? What's happening? What's developing right now? And then once they were born, I was kind of like, oh, now what? And like, to me, an even more important time, like now they're on earth. I don't know what to do with them, especially during that first year. It's kind of tricky. So. Yeah, I'm not surprised that the app is going really, really well for you guys. Thanks. So when I'm thinking about, you know, you've got this app now, you have people in the subscription programs as well, and you also sell one-off products too here and there. Yeah. How do you think about balancing, you know, wanting people to probably be in a subscription just because that's easier, more helpful, and it's more predictable, and then also having one-off products? How do you view those two? Yeah, so what I would say is when we think about the subscription and the app, uh, we think of those as all part of one program for families, mm-hmm. right? And so, and that's the core. Um, we want to have a direct relationship with our customer. We want them on the program because that's going to be what's best for their child and what's going to, you know, kind of like involve them the most deeply with Love Every. So that is the aim of everything that we do. Mm-hmm. That being said, we try to make really great individual products that we can sell in different places. So, for example, when we launched the business, we didn't have enough money uh, to, you know, kind of design and, and manufacture like all these different SKUs for subscription because we design everything ourselves. We're not curating other people's stuff. Mm-hmm. So we launched a play gem. Um, it was the most registered for item uh, for, for parents of, of babies. And it had a lot of developmental aspects. And that product continues today to be a meaningful you know, contributor to our business financially. Um, but perhaps even more important, it's a product that makes people aware of the brand. And that's really how we try to think about it, whether we're talking about the Play Gem or we're talking about our recent exclusive launch with Target, uh, where we created some SKUs specifically for Targets around the country. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to do is create a quality experience in that individual product and do it in a way that kind of onboards people to the brand uh, where they want to like learn more because they like this experience that they're having, where they're actually feeling more informed about what their child wants to do. They like the way that it looks in their home. And so they become more aware of Love Every. They spend time with us maybe online and then they ultimately become subscribers uh, or or at least you know start consuming more of our content. Yep. What kind of metrics are you looking at when it comes to the subscription program? Uh, you know, all the ones that you would expect. So all the normal ones. You know, we look we look at retention very carefully. We look at, okay, how do we retain somebody depending upon what kit they come in? Um, how do we retain somebody depending upon how they've purchased the kits in the very beginning? Um, we look at, you know, now that we have them on a mobile app as well, there's a lot more event data that we have to really understand, Mm -hmm. like, are we giving them a great experience? So those are all the things that you would expect. And then of course, for acquisition, we we're looking at CAC a million different ways. Um, one thing we're proud of with, with CAC and 
uh, with the way that we acquire customers is um, about two thirds of our customers are acquired through organic means. Wow. Which, you know, kind of at this stage and scale, um, you know, for us to see a persistent sort of organic kind of growth going on. That's amazing. Proud of. Yeah. And it just, it speaks to the, you know, we put a lot of love into the products and into the content. And I guess, you know, kind of our customers are responding to that and talking to each other about, about Love Every. Oh, yeah. I can see why. After I got this, I'm like, oh, every new friend that's pregnant, they're going to be getting this. I mean, it's also such an easy thing to gift and not even have to think about it. Because how often do you go to the store and you're picking out a bunch of random things like, oh, I feel like my baby needed that or they needed that. But yeah, so nice to be like, here's a whole subscription and you're good. So thank you. Yeah. So the other thing, I mean, when thinking about, I know I was asking about metrics, but like, have there ever been a subtle tweak that you've done in something that's kind of given you a very surprising outcome? Where you're like, oh, we changed this one thing when it came to customer acquisition or within the app, we did this or anything that was like a smaller tweak that had big results? You know, I think probably the most important thing that we did was invest in creative capacity to create more and different kinds of ad creative. Mm-hmm. And that was really an effort that was led by our head of growth marketing, Alex, mm-hmm. who you know had had previously been running acquisition at Allbirds and and had nice. worked at Zappos before that. So you know he knew he knew he'd forgotten way more about growth marketing than any of the rest of us had had ever learned. Uh-huh. And um, he was pretty firm uh, about the importance of you know kind of not only creating really great creative, but doing it at a high velocity. Mm-hmm. And making sure that we're divergent in that we are creating lots of different kinds of concepts um, and then leaving, leaving our channels you know, as wide open as possible to take that creative in and determine what's going to be successful. I think before we started doing that, we, you know, we, we probably had a little too much structure in our campaigns and mm-hmm. we were relying too heavily on you know, a handful of concepts that had been successful over and over again for us mm-hmm. instead of really getting creative and, and also, you know, kind of like hiring, you know, a team that could give us the capacity to do that. Got it. Okay. So when you say that you were too structured before, like what were you doing before? And then what new things did you start trying? Uh, well, I would say like on Facebook and, and Instagram, for example, like we just were really specific and targeted about who mm-hmm. we wanted to see our ads and who we didn't. And mm-hmm. We completely changed that to just make it wide open it. and let the algorithm determine who should see it. And then when it came to ads, you know, we we just started brainstorming as a company, uh, you know, around ad creative on a much regular basis, and then staffing up, you know, video people, designers, etc., so that we had the capacity to be able to like crank out a lot of different, you know, kinds of ad creative, uh, you know, kind of all at the same time, mm-hmm. um, and drop them in so they could compete with each other. Got it. Okay. So I've heard companies saying a couple of times on the show that, you know, coming up with enough ads is very hard. We had one uh, CEO come on and was saying that essentially her design team would be crying every week because they had to create so many. So like, are there any tools that you guys are using or trying out right now that you or Alex are loving? Or is it really all just in-house like FTEs creating everything? I mean, we do it all in house. I mean, we we like ninety five percent of the ads that that we're making and running are ads that we've made in house in Boise, Idaho. Nice. You know, I think we invest a, a lot in our capacity. We do a ton of photo and video shoots, like every single month. Like we're constantly creating stuff. I guess, like one thing that I would say 
um, has been important for us is we have a pretty robust influencer marketing team as well okay. that is reaching out to influencers on you know Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, et cetera. And, you know, kind of like making sure that they get love every product that they can experience it so that, you know, if they want to, because we don't we don't pay for posts or stories, but if, if they want to, they can share about their experience. And what happens when we do that is we get a tremendous amount of UGC mm-hmm. that we can use in ads. Um, we do use a platform called Grin uh, for, for managing our outreach to influencers. So that would be an example of the technology. Mm-hmm. Got it. How have you seen celebrities impacting the awareness? Because when I was started searching your name, of course, you know, a lot of celebrities are talking about you all. And I'm like, hmm, how has that impacted, you know, your all's company? Yeah, you know, it's um, I mean, we're flattered, right? When Gigi Hadid or Shay Mitchell or, you know, Aisha Curry or Mandy Moore, uh, you know, are Mandy. I loved her. <laughs> yeah, just sharing, sharing our products and and talking about the experience. I think what's cool for us is that because it's not an ad, right? Because they mm-hmm. just they happen to get our products, either we gifted it to them or or somebody else did, mm-hmm. their post is super genuine. And it's actually, you know, in many ways very similar to the posts that you would see from like maybe a, a stay-at-home mom yep. in Oklahoma, right? Um, they're noticing the same stuff, their child's noticing the same stuff. For the brand, um, I think it's it's definitely helpful. It definitely raises awareness. Um, you know, generally when we look at acquisition, between ten and twenty percent of our subscribers join because they became aware of the brand uh, due to somebody that they follow. Mm-hmm. So it's a meaningful contributor. And uh, you know, kind of beyond that, I would say it's also helpful um, with earning credibility with press, because mm-hmm. you know, press is always more interested in writing about you if they can also you know, kind of like mention famous people who um, are into the products and into the brand. Yeah, I'd say so. How, I mean, there was this chart that I saw um, where it was showing the lifetime value of you all versus two competitors. Mm-hmm. And you guys were like, really like a lot higher than the other two. And of course, my first question is like, okay, what are you all doing to keep that lifetime vi- value continuing to increase while the other two, maybe similar companies, you know, are pretty flat? Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can share there around why you you know think you've grown so well and kept that LTV so high? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, off the top of my head, uh, I'll mention a few things, and uh, they might sound trite, but I, I really think that these are are important. So, so one, it, this is going to sound the most trite, but it's it's really hard to overstate the you know just amount of heart and soul that we put mm-hmm. into every single product and every piece of content that we publish. Um, and into the customer experience. I mean, we, you know, as a company, like at every level in the company, we're obsessing over every word. We're obsessing over every element of every product. After it's in market, we're obsessing over it again. Mm-hmm. If a customer is unhappy about something, we go out of our way to try to make it right. Um, and so I think that that just shows up. That shows up in the brand on our social posts. Like engagement levels on our Instagram, for instance, are much higher than. Yeah, you know, some some strong leading brands, not just in early childhood, but kind of across the board, because like I think people respond to that, and then they bring their own heart and soul to the conversation and share it. So I would say that's that's number one. Um, number two, I think, is the fact that we do invest so much in content, um, and we recently hired a, a GM for our content business that we're going to really build up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think because we're investing so much in content uh, and and obsessing about that content. 
We have tremendously high like click to open rates when we send emails to customers about their, their child's developmental stage. We get great engagement on the app um, and people see it as more of a system when there's like really integrated content specific to their child's age. And then I think the third thing that's really important is we co-create with our customers, right? So when, when our customers give us feedback that they'd like to see, for example, more indigenous peoples represented in you know, our book sets, right? Hmm. We go out and we make a book. Um, and you know, when a parent says, hey, I have a child with a limb difference and I'd like you know, for her to be able to see you know, children with limb differences in books, like we, we make that book. We believe, in, like, mm-hmm. we believe that our books can be both mirrors and windows. So an opportunity yeah. for children to see you know, kind of other experiences that are different from theirs and then an opportunity for children to see themselves as well when maybe they don't typically in, in other books. But that's, those are just some small examples. There's a lot that we do working with our customers to make these products. And so the customers feel invested in what we're doing. And, and I think loyalty follows from that. Yeah, I'd say so. Are you closing the loop with the customers after they ask for these things, even if it takes maybe six months or a year to get out into print? Are you kind of circling back with them and saying, hey, go to page seven and 12 to kind of see the differences that have been made because of you? We absolutely do. I mean, if there's a customer who has individually had a conversation with us, and often it's with my co-founder, Jessica, that they might have a one-on-one conversation, um, then Mm -hmm. there will be follow-ups. And it, it could be that that customer even ends up you know, with them and their child in a photo shoot and, and on a product, right? Mm-hmm. If it's, you know, kind of a larger discussion that we're having with our customers on social, like through Instagram stories or somewhere else, um, then we'll typically follow up and explain what we're doing with a blog and with Instagram stories. Mm-hmm. I love that. All right. So I want to shift gears a little bit into money, raising money, taking on debt. Um, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts behind, you know, when to raise money and when to take on debt, because you have some very good investors and a lot of companies that come on the show, they, you know, sometimes I hear a little hesitancy around getting investors, of course, like don't want to give away equity, um, want to just build profitably. And I want to hear, you know, how you kind of, um, how you thought about that process. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's admirable folks who are able to bootstrap like huge businesses. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. very, very rare to even be able to build a big business. Um, and then if yeah. you can bootstrap that, that's really unusual. And, you know, kudos to them, uh, <laughs> like for us. <laughs> Uh, you know, we knew when we were when we were in our you know kind of like seed funding stage trying to raise money. We were telling investors that we were going to build a billion dollar brand mm-hmm. uh, with Love Every, and um, some people got it, a lot of people didn't. But we've been committed to that from the beginning. And given you know that we're selling physical products as a major part of our business, you know that's a business that you know takes some serious cash. Yep to build. Um, there's also, you know, kind of like digital ad markets. So CAC also takes, you know, a meaningful amount of cash to build. And so we always knew we were going to have to raise money. And I think, you know, we just did our best to, you know, try to try to do that in cycles where um, we'd raise some money on the premise that we were going to get to some next inflection point in the business. Mm-hmm. And we knew that if we got to that next inflection point in the business, it would be way more valuable. And so the next time we would raise money, it would be less dilutive for us. And we would have more options of, of different things that we could do. And that's the way it's worked out. I mean, we've done you know seed funding, Series A, Series B, Series C. Um, and it's been that way all the way across. Um, and then when it comes to debt, uh, you know, my co-founder and I, like we hadn't really thought about debt when we started the business. 
Um, and one of our early investors, uh, a firm called Founder Collective, mm -hmm. uh, the partner there, Micah Rosenblum, um, who himself was a former entrepreneur, pulled us aside, you know, kind of and said, hey, you know, you really should think about debt. You should think about incorporating that into your capital structure because it's just not, it's not a smart use of money to just be funding all of this working capital mm -hmm. for physical products with equity. And I think you've got a business that can be funded with debt as well. So, you know, kind of beginning with when we were sort of, you know, series A, uh, we started adding a debt component to the business. Um, so we started off with like a million uh, in, in, you know, kind of debt capital. Um, and that has since grown, you know, kind of quite a bit over time. We, we're not upside down in our balance sheet structure or anything, um, but we've seen debt as an important component to go alongside equity as we build the business. Got it. I could see it also having like a big mindset shift to being able to, you know, have access to new funds as well. Because to me, when you're building in such a scrappy way, I think it can also keep your thinking small. But how do you go about finding good investors? Because there's the ones that can just offer money. And then there's ones like, you know, it's Micah, right? Yeah. Um, that can offer great advice and not yeah. even if it's not in his best interest. Like, how do you find those good ones? Yeah, we've been blessed with like a lot of uh, great investors who have helped us like shape our thinking. And I agree with you, like, you know, it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, thinking big and, and like raising money, you know, kind of to, to fund that are important. But, you know, Michael Rosenblum at Founder Collective, Yuri and Katarina at YesBC, mm -hmm. you know, Jennifer Carolan at Reach Capital, an education focused fund, um, Jason Stouffer at Maveron, uh, which led our Series B, um, you know, Vivian Wu at, at Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Laura Milan at Google Ventures, mm -hmm. you know, at, at the Chernin Group, TCG, we've got, you know, Michaela Venuti and Mike Kearns, um, you know, and I'm sure I'm, I'm leaving some folks out. Um, it's a baller list, though, just saying. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good list. And I think, you know, we've been fortunate. I would say that the part of it that wasn't luck was the amount of work and time that we invested into the fundraising process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our perspective was investors and investor capital are a strategic asset. And also, like, once you've got them, you can't really get rid of them. So you better make sure you like yep. them and you're aligned around mission, right? And so, you know, the key to all of that is making sure you have lots of choices mm -hmm. so that you can make a, a thoughtful choice as opposed to having a choice imposed upon you. And so in every fundraise, we managed it like a sales pipeline uh, and we managed it toward really building relationships with everybody, helping them understand our business because maybe they're not going to be interested in our business when they learn more and helping us learn about them. So, you know, kind of we, we really put time into it. We didn't just view it as a burden, like, oh gosh, I have to do this. Um, we viewed it as something that we really wanted to get right because it was fundamental to like the kind of business we were going to end up with, like who we ended up having invest with us. Got it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So where do you want to be with Love Every in the next one to three years? Like what are some moonshots that you're taking right now? And then, you know, where are you hoping to be? Yeah. So I think we view Love Every as having the potential to be an iconic transformative early learning brand that's worldwide mm -hmm. that's you know kind of as much a digital content business as it is a physical product business the core of which is a recurring revenue relationship with parents and we see ourselves aging up at least until a child is six years old potentially beyond uh, we see ourselves providing more and more specialized services to parents uh, to help them along the way and we think this can be a really big really important business that changes the way that people parent um, I think 
you know, kind of if we think about capital structure and how we make that happen financially, uh, we've shared uh, with press that it's our, our goal to take this company public over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for this company to realize its full potential, uh, it needs to tap into public markets uh, for lots of different reasons for funding, sure, but also to have uh, an interactive relationship with public markets investors. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I don't think many people, maybe maybe some listening, but many wouldn't, you know, be thinking about like the benefits of maybe going public. And I know you've obviously, you know, taken companies public before. This is kind of your area. So maybe if you could touch on that for a bit, just tell me like, what do you see, you know, being beneficial other than the funding piece to it? Because to me, I hear a lot, you know, of course, think about a lot more regulations and all the other things you have to deal with and kind of the new distractions. So like, what are the, what's the upside to wanting to go public? I mean, the upside is really credibility and also, you know, for for people who really believe in your brand, have, giving them an opportunity to invest in your brand um, and and see it, you know, kind of like flourish and see them benefit from that is a great way to have alignment with your customer base. Uh, so those are both important aspects. Um, it's also important for credibility with your supply chain mm. and with new markets that you want to enter. So it's it's valuable in all those respects. Uh, also, you know, we've got like a lot of employees who've been working really hard on this business. And uh, it's important for us to make sure that we can, you know, get the early employees in particular, like compensated for the risks that they took early on. So that's another yeah. reason why it's important. Got it. Okay. Have you been able, like, what have you seen in the environment right now when it comes to, I know you mentioned like, you know, wholesalers and suppliers and all that. And I've heard a lot of brands coming on here and saying, you know, there's been huge price increases and they can't control costs. And you know, shipping's been a struggle. How are you kind of controlling that as a bigger company? Like, what are some maybe secrets that you have around kind of keeping that a bit more stable? Uh, you know, I don't know that we have any secrets other than that we have like a really talented operations team um, and procurement team uh, that are, you know, kind of like working hand in hand at every stage of the supply chain. It's tricky because, you know, we've we've got you know, kind of all this growth going on. And, you know, depending upon when customers come in, um, it can shape, you know, kind of like what the mix is of kits that we need to be producing. Mm -hmm. But the flip side is like a subscription business is more predictable than some of these other kinds of businesses. So our dedication to subscription actually helps us. So I think it's just a combination of having a good business model for supply chain Mm -hmm. and also just having really talented people who are obsessed with every, every point across the cycle from source all the way to getting to a, a parent's home. Yep. Uh, always comes back to team. I feel like that's the theme of this interview is like, got to have the A players everywhere, growth team, supply yeah. chain, operations. It's true. Completely agree. All right. Let's shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Rod? I guess so. <laughs> All right. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? I would say to be self-aware uh, about your own gaps and to try to hire people who are stronger than you are, um, you know, kind of in every single gap, whether that's, you know, a behavioral gap or a knowledge gap, an experience gap. Um, you know, I think some people can be shy or intimidated, um, or jealous about hiring people who are better than they are at different things. Um, but self-awareness and, you know, kind of hiring to, you know, kind of make up for your weaknesses is super duper important. Yeah, I agree. What's one book that's had a big impact on you that maybe you actually keep going back to year after year, every couple of years? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, I'm going to say that that actually the thing that I keep going back to all the time is not a book. It's um, it's a newspaper. I read the Wall Street Journal every day. Okay. In paper form, because um, yeah. I want my kids to see that I'm like reading a paper. Uh-huh. And I read The Economist every week. I just think that like, it's really easy with digital media to just sort of get like your brain hijacked around what's news or what isn't or what's going on or be very like us centric in your view um and there's nothing like print um so i'm just gonna say i love print and i love getting like regular news yeah i feel that we uh we're getting print of that as well for a while and i'm like this is so much nicer than going you know somewhere and seeing ads and then linking all around and one hour later i'm reading something that has nothing to do with what i should be looking at anyways newspaper is is actually like a great form factor mm-hmm. it's, it's actually pretty good yeah yeah Maybe it'll come back and become more popular again. What's old is new again. I feel like it, it'll go out of style and then come back strong. Gen Z, right? They'll start to yep. TikToking about newspapers and it'll be, it'll be. A th- and direct mail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the benefits. What's one thing you don't understand today, but you wish you did? Oh gosh. Um, you know, I think, um, I mean, probably lots of people say this. I, I would say like, I, I wish I understood crypto better mm-hmm. because uh, not because I'm like trying to become a crypto billionaire or something, but it just seems like in the last year or two, crypto, NFTs, like this whole, you know, sort of world has sort of taken over um, for the way a lot of people are thinking about building businesses. And mm-hmm. I feel a little bit like I have a blind spot around this. Um, so I would say I would say that. Yep. I love that. All right, Rod. Well, thank you so much for hopping on here, hanging out and telling us all about Love Every. Until next time, where can people learn more about you and Love Every? So just go to loveevery.com. That's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, anywhere where you get content. Uh, We also have a great podcast called My New Life. Nice. Amazing. Thanks so much, Rod. Thank you. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.